precious grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Sing that with me. That we cannot hide What can avail To wash it away But Lord There is flowing A crimson tide Whiter than snow You can be today Sing that again Praise, praise precious moment when I felt sin's burdens all flee now my eyes with joy cry it how could my lips deny it for my heart testifies it I'm free I'm free And God's Spirit in me I'm rejoicing Because I am not what I was Thanks to Calvary's tree I'm free I'm rejoicing Because I am not what I was Thanks to Calvary's tree have the ushers get ready. Lately I've been looking back along this winding road to the old familiar markers of the mercies I have known I know it may sound simple but it's more than a cliche no other way to tell you but to say God's been good in my life I feel blessed beyond my wildest dreams when I go to sleep each night. Oh, I've had my share of hard times. I would change them if I could, because through it all, God's been good. Times 
every play and I can see I've cried some bitter tears but I felt his arms around me as I faced life's greatest fears I've had more gains than losses and I've known more joys than hurt as his grace rolled down upon me God's been good in my life. I feel blessed beyond my wildest dreams when I go to sleep each night. Oh, I've had my share of hard times. I would change them if I could. Is through it all, God's been good. God has been my Father, my Savior, and my friend. His love is my beginning. His love will be my end. I could spend forever trying tell you everything he is but the best way i can say it is this god's been good in my life i feel blessed beyond my wildest dreams when i go to sleep each night Oh, I've had my share of hard times. I wouldn't change them if I could. Cause through it all, God's been good. Oh, I've had my share of hard times. I wouldn't change them if I could. Cause through it all, know what God is doing, but when you look back and you see what he's done, then you begin to understand that you can trust him. And for the child of God, you know, it just gets better. It does. Because when this life is over, we get heaven for all eternity. And there will be no difficulty there. There will be no sorrow there. There will be no tears there. And that will be a wonderful, wonderful place. The holy hills of heaven call me to mansions bright across the sea where loved ones wait and crowns are given and the hills of My last mile here, the call will be coming for me. 
Then I'll enter the lifeboat that will be near to carry me over that sea. And he'll hold my hand as over this river I go. Then safe I'll be in beautiful heaven I stuff that's not going to be there <laughs> it's going to be wonderful blessing there'll be no sorrow there no more burdens to bear no more sickness no pain no more parting over there and 
When my Jesus I shall see, and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day, that will be. What a day, glorious day, that will be. be don't tell me I don't want to know but it's good to be here uh, tonight I'm so glad that you're here on a Tuesday I hope I hope if uh, if you don't have another church that you're obligated to be at tomorrow I hope that you'll be here tomorrow night as well and by all means invite somebody to come with you take your Bible tonight if you would and go to the book of John John chapter 7 John chapter 7. When you find that, would you stand with me as we read the word of God tonight? <coughs> John chapter 7, verse 25. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Then look, if you would, down at verse number 44. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good day that you've given to us. Lord, thank you that we can come here tonight and rejoice together and fellowship together. Lord, thank you that we can come tonight and sing about you and talk about you and preach about you and, and just be glad that we know you. Lord, if there's somebody here tonight that doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day they'd understand their need and trust Christ before it's too late. We ask you to work in our midst tonight, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I like history. Uh, I enjoy history. Now that I'm old as dirt, uh, I've always liked it, but history is becoming more important because I have more of it now. But uh, I've always enjoyed it very much, and one of the things I did for years on staff at my home church was, was teach history in the Christian school, and I don't know if the students enjoyed it, I don't know if they got anything out of it, but I loved it. I, you know, I, I wish we hadn't been in school, it would have been a lot more fun to teach history had we not been in school. But I, I enjoy it, and one of the amazing things about history is that you can see how quickly the course of events can turn. How quickly, really, everything can change just, just in a matter of a very short time when just one person gets up and says a few words and those words catch fire in the hearts and minds of the listeners, the course of events of history can change just like that. It's amazing. Queen Elizabeth I of England was without a doubt one of the most powerful women who ever lived. She was, she was the daughter of King Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. And she was known as the Virgin Queen or Good Queen Bess. She was 25 years old when she became queen and ruled England for 44 years until she was 69 years old. They tell us that she was tall and slender and had fair skin and curly red hair. And here she was, this, this single woman, really a girl, on the throne of England. And you need to remember that her father, Henry VIII, was the one that took England out from under Roman Catholicism. He pulled England out from under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And you need to know that wasn't just some kind of a, uh, 
a, a religious squabble because the, the Catholic Church had control over all of the kingdoms of Europe and, and the Pope quite literally decided who would be on what throne and what armies would march and what would happen and he was in control of everything and for Henry to take England out from under that was not just a little religious thing, it was a huge deal and it was a big political crisis as well. And so when Elizabeth took the throne, all of a sudden it was the perfect time for the Pope to get England back. Here she was, young and untested. He didn't try it under Henry. Uh, now, I'd like to tell you that Henry pulled England out from under Roman Catholicism because of a deep abiding spirituality. Uh, however, if you know anything at all about history, <laughs> you know that Henry was a lot of things, but spiritual was never one of them. He just wanted to divorce his wife, and the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce, so he made his own church. Isn't that handy? And gave himself a divorce. Pretty handy. And, and it wasn't spiritual at all. It was just downright wicked and all the rest. But one of the other interesting things about history is you can see how God uses even the foolishness of men to accomplish his purposes. You see, Henry was a strong leader. He was a strong military man. He was a strong king. And, and there was no hope of recapturing England for Roman Catholicism while Henry was on the throne. But when Elizabeth took the throne, this was the opportunity. And so if you go back and check out history, you'll find that Philip of Spain considered himself to be the military arm of the Roman Catholic Church. And so the Spanish Armada, you probably remember that. The Spanish Armada was set to sail against England to overtake England and recapture it for Roman Catholicism. Spain had the largest navy in the world. They had big ships, they had big guns, they had everything. England had no navy at that point. All they had were a few little merchant ships that they'd outfitted with some guns, and they had a few pirates that had agreed to sail for England. And that's what they had against the greatest navy on the seas. And here they were, ready to go out to battle. And Elizabeth went out to give a speech to her men who were going out to what would be their certain destruction. There was no earthly way they could win the battle. And there they were gathered together. And she went right out there in the middle of them and gave a speech. And her speech is recorded. I just want to give you a little bit of it tonight. She said this. Let tyrants fear. I have always so behaved myself that under God I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects. And therefore I am come amongst you at this time, not as for my recreation or sport, but being resolved in the midst and heat of the battle to live or die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and for my people my honor and my blood, even the dust. I know I have but the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart of a king and of a king of England too, not doubting by your obedience to my general, by your concord in the camp, and by your valor in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory over the enemies of my God, of my kingdom, and of my people. And those men said, we'll go, and they went out. And if you remember history, you remember that an amazing thing happened. God sent a storm. No other explanation for it. God sent a massive storm that came in and wiped out the Spanish fleet. Just wiped it out. And those little merchant ships and pirate ships went in and cleaned up the mess and took some prisoners. And England became the ruling world power on the seas from that time all the way up to World War II. Pretty amazing stuff. The course of history changed just like that when one person got up and said some words and those words captured hearts and those men went out to do a job that was impossible to do. Pretty amazing. That's not all the story. We don't have time to go into all of it. Oh, I wish I could just spend a lot of time on that tonight and tell you more about it. But just as a little quick aside, Elizabeth never married. She had no children. She had no heirs. And so when she died, her nephew, who was presently the king of Scotland, became the king of England and Scotland, and they became Great Britain, the United Kingdom. His name was James, James I. And he said, shortly after he took the throne, people should have the word of God in their own language. 
That never would have happened had Henry not pulled England out from under Roman Catholicism. Isn't it amazing? And because of all that, and because Elizabeth stood, and because James stood, and you have the word of God in your hands. God did that. It's amazing, isn't it? March 23rd, 1775. A man by the name of Patrick Henry stood up to give a speech in the Virginia legislature. You see, the Revolutionary War was just about to begin. And yet Virginia, the largest and most prosperous of the colonies, was not sure if they wanted to get in or not. You see, there were a lot of wealthy people in Virginia, a lot of landowners, businessmen, and they knew full well if they plunged into this revolution thing, win or lose, they would probably lose everything they had. And they were hesitant to do so, understandably. And so Patrick Henry got up in that legislature. After they'd voted, they'd voted multiple times, and they were stalemated all the way across. He got up and he gave a speech, and history tells us that he did so without any notes. He just spoke from his heart, and as he spoke, he got louder and louder until he was screaming when he got to the end of his speech. And he screamed these words. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. And he sat down and they voted and the revolution was on. And the course of history was changed just like that. Isn't that amazing? Just in the course of a few minutes time with a few words. June 18th, 1940. World War II was on. We weren't in it yet. We were doing our best to stay out of it. But Hitler had already run over a good portion of Europe. And he was on the doorstep of Great Britain. And he gave them an ultimatum. He said, you can either surrender or I will wipe you out. And he had the momentum and the military to do it. And Winston Churchill, the prime minister, gave a speech to his people. And he said this, if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. And those people, under siege, bombs falling, said we're not going to surrender, we're not going to give up, we're going to stand. And they did, and the course of history was changed. It's hard to tell what would have happened had Britain folded and surrendered to Adolf Hitler. There's no telling what would have happened. June 12, 1987. I remember that day. I was watching it on television. I've been a news junkie for a long time. You know what's really sad is that there are people sitting in this room right now who were not alive in 1987. Probably a lot of them. And that's sad. Everybody should have been alive by 1987. If you weren't alive yet by 1987, you just missed a lot. You missed a whole lot. <laughs> June 12, 1987, our president was in West Berlin, Germany. And he was going to give a speech that day. He was a unique president, a well-loved president, and yet the press said he probably was the stupidest man who ever lived. He didn't know what he was talking about. He, he had no idea about world affairs, and he didn't know what to do, and everything he said was wrong, and everything he did was wrong, and the press is usually wrong about these things. His name was Ronald Reagan. And he was getting up to give a speech that day in West Berlin, Germany, at the Brandenburg Gate, at the wall that divided East and West Berlin. There were American flags lined up all across the platform. And the sun was shining and the breeze was blowing. And I remember watching it on the news. And it was exciting. Now, Ronald Reagan was a unique guy. You see, he had, he had this overwhelming compulsion to just say what he believed was true. And sometimes it got him into trouble, especially with the press. 
And if you Google it, you can Google it and, and you can see the pictures of the speech. I mean, you can look at the actual speech. You can see what's crossed off that he's not supposed to say. You can see what's written in that he is supposed to say. But that day he got up there and the flags were flying and the breeze was blowing and the sun was shining and he went off script. And he said some stuff he wasn't supposed to say. You see, he wasn't supposed to say anything negative about communism. Because after all, we love communism. That's what we want to be when we grow up. We even vote for them sometimes in presidential primaries. I'm smiling at you. You do understand that during our last round of political stuff, we had a, a man that referred to himself as a democratic socialist who said that openly and was running for the, uh, for the nomination of a major political party. And, and by the way, he won a lot of states, a lot of them. Do you understand that socialism is nothing more than the economic system of communism? There is no difference. That is the system. That's the economy of communism. And you can, you can decorate it all up and call yourself democratic this and all the rest, but socialism is socialism and it is poison. Every place it's ever been done, it has destroyed the nation that has done it. And if we go that route, it will destroy us. That's a freebie. He wasn't supposed to say anything at all negative about, about communism or socialism and, and nothing bad about Russia. It was all supposed to be good. And he got up there and he started speaking and he just couldn't help himself. And he just said what was on his heart. And this is what he said. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You'd have thought he'd slapped somebody's grandmother. I mean, it caused a stink in the papers and on the news that he would even imply there was anything at all negative about communism, let alone dare the, the communist leader to come tear down the wall. How presumptuous and how ridiculous. And Mr. Gorbachev didn't come tear down the wall. He didn't. But you know what? Those words that he said that day, they captured the thinking of millions of people. And it wasn't too long until you could watch on the news every night. People from both sides of that wall showed up at that wall with their own shovels and picks and axes, and, and they tore the thing down with their bare hands. And when it got wobbly enough, they shoved it over and they pushed it over with with heavy equipment and all the rest, and then they started selling pieces. Free enterprise just broke out everywhere. You can probably still buy pieces on eBay if you look for it. I'm sure somebody's got some for sale. Do you know what happened? One man said a few words, and those words captured the thinking of people, and it changed the course of history. Oh, those are wonderful. By the way, we could spend hours doing this because there are multitudes more. However, all of those and all the others you can think of combined pale in comparison to the greatest speaker who ever walked the face of the earth. Because these men and women, when they spoke, it changed the course of a battle or a nation or an economic system. But this one man, when he spoke, it changed the course of eternity because he was God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the greatest dissertation that he ever gave, I believe with all my heart, was not given to a, a multitude of people. It was not given to a legislative body. It was not given to an army ready to go out to battle. It was given to one man in the dark. It's found in John chapter 3. Turn to John chapter 3. They said, never a man spake like this man. No, nobody's ever said the things he says. Nobody's ever said those things and, and nobody's ever conveyed those truths. Look, if you would, at John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou dost except God be with him. 
Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus spoke of things that nobody else had ever spoken of. And here he spoke to Nicodemus of the kingdom of God. Nicodemus comes as a Pharisee, a religious leader. He's a, he's a religious guy. And he comes and he butters Jesus up a little bit, says, we know you're from God because of all the things you do, the miracles and all the rest. And really, this is one religious guy coming to talk to another religious guy about religion and miracles. He wants to know how Jesus does what he does and, and all the rest. He just wants to talk shop about religion and miracles. And he goes all the way through it. And Jesus looks him right in the eye and ignores everything that he's just said. He doesn't even acknowledge anything that Nicodemus has said. And instead, he says to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Can you imagine Nicodemus standing there saying, Huh? What, what, what does that mean? Nobody's ever talked to Nicodemus about the kingdom of God. He doesn't even know there is a kingdom of God. All Nicodemus knows is religion. That's all he knows. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, there's something more important than religion and miracles. There's this thing of where you're going to spend eternity. And you'd better be in the kingdom of God or you will not spend eternity with him. You'd better be sure you are in, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Listen, the big picture is not religion and religious stuff. The big picture is where will you spend eternity? That's the big picture. You better get that settled and soon. Then he goes on, look at verse 4. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Listen, we, we've heard these verses all our lives. Nicodemus has never heard of being born again. He's never heard of that. That's the weirdest thing he's ever come across. And so he's asking perfectly reasonable questions. So what, what does that mean? How? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Nicodemus says, what, what do you mean be born again? Uh, how, that, that won't even work. You can only be born once. How can you enter into your mother's womb and be born again? That's a reasonable question from Nicodemus' perspective. Jesus said, Nicodemus, you didn't quite get it. You see, he's speaking of something that Nicodemus doesn't know, and that's a spiritual birth. Oh, he spoke of the kingdom of God. He spoke of a spiritual birth. All that Nicodemus knows of is a physical birth. And now he's finding out there's a second one that he doesn't know about. There's this spiritual birth. Thing. Now, I know that there are people who would take these verses in verse number five, where it says, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And they would tell you that means you have to be baptized to be saved. Now, we don't have time to cover that in depth tonight. So we'll let the pastor do that later. Let me just cover it shallow like, okay? Just, just a, a theological term for that. Fooey. Fooey. You can read John chapter 3 forwards, backwards, upside down, any way you want. There is no baptism in John chapter 3. There is none of any sort, of any kind in John chapter 3. He's not talking baptism. He's talking about birth. It's all, if you just read the context, you know what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, he explains it in the next verse. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That is the explanation of verse 5. It's two different births, a physical one and a spiritual one. Now, all of you ladies that have had babies, you know that there's water involved in the process. And when your water breaks, that's not time to go shopping. Right? That, that means you better get where you're going because things are moving. And it's just a matter of time. That's all Jesus is talking about. He says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You need more than a physical birth. You need a spiritual birth. Flesh 
can only bring forth flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's why good works and morality and religion cannot save you. Because that can all be done in the flesh, like we said Sunday night. You can be a good moral person in the flesh. You can be a good religious person in the flesh, and you will die and go to hell. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. You don't need a flesh birth. You need a spiritual birth. You need a spiritual birth. Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, and he spoke of a spiritual birth, and Nicodemus had never heard anything like it in all his life. I hope we get to watch this replay as well, because I want to see the look on Nicodemus' face as Jesus explains it to him. Look at verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, and he spoke of a spiritual birth, and then he spoke of the problem of unbelief. He said, Nicodemus, if you can't understand a simple physical truth that I tell you, how in the world will you ever understand a spiritual truth? If you can't even understand what you can see with your own eyes, you'll never understand that which can only be discerned through the Spirit. That wasn't just a problem for Nicodemus. That's the very same problem we still have in our world today. And if anything, it's getting worse we have abandoned truth, we've rejected truth, and we've come to the place where we not only hate truth, we fear truth. We are scared to death somebody might tell us the truth. And if they do, we like little children plug our ears and go, ah, and we run the other direction. Or else we just don't allow it to come out in the public. And if it does, we shout it down and we, and we put it away somewhere where nobody can see it. That's where we are today. We can no longer look at something and honestly tell what it is. We can't. We found out last year that you can just decide whether you're male or female. You can just say, today I am male. Today I am female. And, and that's crazy enough. But then, <laughs> here's how far we've gone. Then everybody else is supposed to jump on your crazy train and believe you. Now, that's ridiculous. Any, any five-year-old can look and say, that's a man in a dress. Can they not? And yet, we as adults look at it and say, Whatever he says he is, he is. You know why? We're afraid of truth. We're scared. Scared to death of truth. We've been, we've been brainwashed all our lives that truth is bad. And there is no truth. Whatever's good for you is good for you. Whatever's good for me is good for me. And I decide my own truth. That is a lie. There is solid, eternal, never-changing truth. And it comes from God Almighty. I, I shouldn't have, but I did. I watched a little clip, because it popped up on my computer, of the ESPN Courage Award. Not this last year, the year before. And they gave it to a man in a dress. They gave it to Bruce Jenner. He's a man. He can call himself whatever he wants. He's a man. He's six foot five. He's, <laughs> he's got big old hands. I mean, huge hands. And this thing popped up on my, on my computer. And he's up there in heels and a gown with a big old wig on. And they come out and they hand him the award. I should not have watched. I should not. But it was like a train wreck. I just had to see if anybody walked away. 
And so I clicked on it. I just, I had to see it. And, and they handed him the award, and there he is holding it with these great big hands. He was dwarfing this award with these hands. And standing there in those heels, on, in that gown. And, and I had to listen because I wanted to hear him talk. And, and he said, I want to thank you for this award. <sighs> oh. And he, he gave his little speech. And, and then thousands of people stood up and applauded. Thousands of people. Now don't tell me that all those football players and basketball players and rugby players and, and hockey players in that, in that auditorium, in those thousands of people that night, thought, wow, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. You know why they stood and applauded? Because they were scared to death. And they knew that as soon as that speech was over, the cameras would be panning the entire audience, and they had better stand up and applaud, because if they don't, their career is over. And they didn't agree with a single thing that was happening on that platform. And they were disgusted by it and all the rest. And they stood and they applauded. Because they were afraid to just say, that's a man in a dress. I'm sorry, that's the truth. Now, what I just said to you qualifies as hate speech outside those walls. And I don't hate people like that. I don't. Can I be honest with you? Folks like that, are they're messed up. They're so confused and so messed up by sin and all the rest that they don't know which way is up. And just, let's just be honest, that always ends badly. It ends badly. And you don't help that person by jumping into their delusion and patting them on the back and telling them they are what they think they are. You help that person by saying, let's think right and get this straightened out. And yet we're so afraid of truth that we can't even look at it and say what it is. We're hearing all the time, you know, they're, they're talking about a, a Supreme Court justice and all this. And, and the biggest issue seems to be, what's he, what's, he believe about, what's he believe about women's health issues? Nobody cares about women's health issues in your Congress. They don't care. They couldn't care less about women's health issues in your Congress. You know what they're really talking about? The right to slaughter babies. They're not going to say that because they're afraid of the truth. They're going to, they're going to lie and they're going to pretend they're talking about your health. Nobody goes to the abortion clinic for their health. They go to the abortion clinic to slaughter babies. And that, by the way, is what Planned Parenthood does. That's the only thing they do. They don't do mammograms and all the rest. They refer you to somebody who does it. They don't do it. And then they take that little baby and they sell his body parts to the highest bidder. And that is the truth. You can't say that. I'm sorry. That's the truth. You know what our problem is? We're afraid of truth. Just to say it out loud is enough to make people run the other direction with their ears plugged. Now, the devil didn't do all of that just to mess up the bathrooms over at Target. You know why the devil's done all that? So that you will be so afraid of truth that when somebody comes along and says, here's the truth, here's what God says, you will run the other direction. That's why the devil has made truth so unimportant to us today and made us hate it and despise it and fear it so that you will never ever listen to what God has to say because what he says is always truth. And the devil's going to continue doing that same thing. We need, we need to stand on truth and stand for truth and not be afraid to speak truth because the less we speak truth, the less we'll have the right to speak the truth down the road. You see, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you can't just see an obvious truth in front of you and understand it, how in the world will you ever understand spiritual truth? When I try to tell you things that are spiritual, you won't acknowledge it at all. You'll go the other direction. He spoke of the problem of unbelief, the very same problem we have today. And then look what he spoke of in verse 13. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, in verses 13 through 15, he's making reference to something that happened in the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 21, verses 5, 6, 7, uh, where the, the Israelites are out in the wilderness... And these serpents come and begin to bite the people. And God said to Moses, make a serpent out of brass and put it on a pole. And when they look up there, they'll be saved from these serpents. And sure enough, it worked. Listen, to us, that's just a half dozen verses in Numbers chapter 21. To Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, he not only knows that story, he's memorized all of that. He knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. And he knows that that serpent lifted up was the salvation of those people. And Jesus said, it's not about snakes and poles. It's about the Son of God being sacrificed for your sin. He spoke of his own sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the remedy for the problem. And the problem in our world is sin. It's not poverty. It's not economics. It's not some other thing. It is sin. That's the problem, and Jesus is the answer. Look down at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He spoke not only of his own sacrifice, but he spoke of God's offer of love and salvation. Now to us, not a big deal. We've heard John 3.16 all our lives. Most of us memorized it as little children. People who don't even know God know John 3.16. They hold it up at basketball games and football games and they probably don't have a clue what it is they're holding up. Nicodemus has never heard these words. They've never been uttered before. And Jesus looks at this man who's known religion all of his life. He's known religion. He's known you keep the law, and if you don't, you're in trouble, and God will get you if you break the law. And Jesus looked at him and said, For God so loved the world. Nicodemus has never heard anything like that in all his life. You see, the, the concept of God worldwide, the, the pagan concept, the heathen concept, the religious concept of God has always been God or the gods are up there and we're down here and they're mad at us. And so we have to do things to keep them from hurting us. And, and so we sacrifice and so we bring offerings and we do all those things and that holds back the wrath of God or the gods. That's been the concept forever. And to be quite honest, that was Nicodemus' concept as well. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, <laughs> for God so loved the world. The reason the Son of Man is going to be lifted up is because God loves you. Can you imagine what went through Nicodemus' mind? God loves the world. Because of that, he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Wow. All Nicodemus has ever known is working hard for his salvation. And Jesus just said, God wants to give it to you. That's completely revolutionary. He spoke of God's offer of love and salvation. And Nicodemus, can you imagine? Wouldn't it be wonderful to see that played out in front of you and see those words spoken for the very first time and see how it registered on the mind of that religious man. Look at verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not. Not he that doesn't do enough good works. Not he that doesn't be part of the right religion. Not he that doesn't get baptized. He that believeth not 
is condemned already. He spoke of the condemnation of unbelief. It's not your lack of good works that condemns you. It's your not, not your lack of, of religious duty that condemns you. It's your unbelief. And you can make it all through your life, being good and moral and religious and upstanding and all the rest. But if you make it through this life without having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ to be your only hope of salvation, then you leave this life condemned already. Too many people think the way to be condemned is to publicly disavow God or shake their fist in the face of God and tell God they don't need Him. You don't have to do that. All you have to do is make it through life without believing in Him. And you're already condemned. He spoke of the condemnation of unbelief. But then look what happens in the next couple of verses. Verse number, uh, verse number 20. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Then there's a period, end of story, change of subject. Nicodemus goes away, that's it. What a strange way to end the conversation. You know what verses 20 and 21 are? They're Jesus presenting Nicodemus with a choice. He just told Nicodemus everything he needs to know. And he gets down to verses 20 and 21, and he in essence says, now you can come to me, or you can go away. End of story. I'd love to see what happened when Nicodemus made his way back home that night. What he said to Mrs. Nicodemus after he got home how he relayed that information to her, I, I don't know. We don't really know for sure what happened to Nicodemus. But he does show up later. He shows up later. And later on, he's not coming in the dark, afraid people will see him. Later on, he's taking special care for the body of the Savior. So that would lead you to believe that somewhere between that point and when we meet him again, he has carefully considered everything Jesus said, and he's chosen to follow him. I believe with all my heart that if the Lord Jesus Christ could stand in front of every church this coming Sunday morning, he probably would tell them exactly what he told Nicodemus. I mean, just right down the line. He'd tell them exactly the same thing. Only it wouldn't be future tense, the Son of Man being lifted up. It'd be past tense. And he would probably end it the same way. He'd probably go through the whole thing and then say, now you can either come to me or you can go the other way. I wonder what the invitation would look like in a lot of places. I wonder how many would just turn around and say, well, that was a nice sermon and walk out the door. And how many would come to him? Listen, the choice is still the same. Still the same. You can either come to Jesus and find forgiveness and redemption through his blood shed on the cross of Calvary. Or you can go the other way and give it your best shot. But your best shot leaves you condemned already. There's no doubt about it. I didn't make it up. It's in black and white. You just saw it. You walk away, you're condemned already. Jesus said that. Maybe you're here tonight, you've never trusted Christ as Savior. You've got to make that choice. You will either come to Him for your salvation or you'll try it on your own. If you try it on your own, you fail. He's your only hope. But saved person, can I tell you tonight, the choice is the same for you. You see, God doesn't just save you and then leave you alone. He saves you, and then he wants to be part of everything in your life. And you can either come to him with everything in your life, or you can let him take care of the salvation and you handle everything else. And if you let him take care of the salvation and you handle everything else, you will destroy your life. Absolutely destroy your life 
as a saved person because you made the wrong choice. The choice is yours. Will you come to him or walk away? Let's stand together and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we could be here in this place tonight. Lord, I pray that if there's one lost, that tonight they would come to you for eternal salvation. Lord, I know that on a Tuesday night, most of the folks here would profess faith in Jesus Christ. They could point back to a time when they got saved. And Lord, sometimes we're so foolish that we think the only thing you do is salvation. And the rest of our life is up to us. God, I pray we'd tonight bring the rest of it to you and drop it off and let you have it. God, I pray that you'd work in each and every heart. We'll give you all the honor and glory for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.